0: All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And as you do that, uh, let me have a word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for another opportunity and privilege to study about you. Even in these last verses of the doctrinal section of Hebrews. Lord, to know that your love for us is an action word. Don't just say it, you do it. And because you've done it, we can be set free, we can be purified, we can be made right with you, we can enter into your holy presence because of what the Lord Jesus Christ fully and finally completed on behalf of his children, we praise you this morning for that, Lord. And we ha- we ask you continually to help us to ki- uh, to understand even more about the great sacrifice you have accomplished on our behalf. And we'll give you the praise and the glory and the honor for all that is due your name. Thank you, Lord. And I pray this. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to look at the last... Uh, Actually, verse 11 through 18, before the last section. Actually, this is the last section of doctrine, at least formal doctrine, on this whole topic of the Old and New Covenant in the book of Hebrews before he gets to the practical. He took ten chapters to tell you, okay, now this is what you do. So don't ever think that doctrine is not important. Doctrine lays the foundation on why I do what I do and the motives I have while I do what I do. And so when we are doing something, that we will not be doing it for anyone else than the Lord Himself, right? And if we do it for Him, then He has to get the credit. And uh, we won't have to look for accolades or for pats on the back or anything like that, even though you may get that, and those things are fine in their place. But... uh, Nonetheless, doctrine always is the foundation on why I do what I do and who I do it for. So, in approaching this passage, we have already been occupied with some of the great shadows of the Old Testament like the law, like the priestly sacrifices. And the law, remember, was the shadow of good things to come. And we have seen all of them fulfilled in Christ. You never can have a shadow without a substance. And our Lord Jesus is that great substance which down through the ages has cast His shadow. You see the true and the detailed picture of the sacrifice that God would provide is Jesus Christ Himself. Even when Meaning that every point everything pointed to him, everything in the Old Testament pointed to him, and even while Jesus was walking with those on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, he proclaimed very directly to those people walking with him, where he says in Luke chapter twenty four and he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets' Have spoken. Was it not necessary because of what the prophet said? For Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory. And of course, then Jesus, it says in Scripture, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of Scripture. That's an amazing passage of Scripture. The Lord's pretty much saying all of it is about me. All of it focuses on me. Now you see, Jesus is the substance of all the types and shadows in Scriptures. He is the substance. He is the reality. So, to cling to a shadow, to cling to a type in its incompleteness, and not to the substance to which it points, is to actually miss Christ. And many people have missed Christ because they didn't go all the way. They didn't understand the full revelation of God on where it was all pointing to. But remember, these shadows and types were not able to perfect the worshiper. And that's how it was happening in this section of Scripture. There is seen the necessity of fresh victims, fresh blood shedding year by year. And the reason for this is given by God in chapter 10, verse 4, which I've covered. It says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And then according to Hebrews 10, verse 3, But but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, that this whole sacrificial system was just to remind people they're sinners. In fact, when we use the law in evangelism, isn't that what the law does—the moral aspect of the law—reminds us even now that we are sinners. It reminds the unsaved person that they are they are a sinner. They have broken God's standard. They have broken God's law, and they are responsible for every word, every thought, every deed that they would commit. So, see, this is something that the law and Its whole system of sacrifice just reminds the one who comes to worship that they are not purified. That they're still in their sins uh, and their sins separate them between them and God. And they could never get farther than the next sacrifice. They could never get farther than the Day of Atonement, which brings them to the next big event in the system. uh, And so therefore... Remember, animal sacrifices could only cover sin. Now, that, that's a significant truth. Uh, it did not remove it or make one perfect before God. That means, as, that means a far different and a vastly superior sacrifice is needed to take care of the sins of men and women. So this is why. When we come to a passage like this in Scripture, he begins to quote from Psalm chapter 40. And like I said before, he was quoting from the Septuagint, which is probably finished in about 270 uh, B.C. And it is a section in which the uh, the writer of Hebrews often quotes. And this is what it says. In and in just listen to what it says in uh, Psalm Chapter 40, verse 6 through 9 in the Septuagint. It says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body that has prepared me, whole burnt offering and sacrifice for sin thou didst not require. Then I said, Behold, I come in the volume of the book it is written concerning me. I desired to do thy will, O my God, and thy law is in the midst of mine heart, I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I will not refrain my lips. O Lord, thou knowest my righteousness. And that passage of Scripture is, is really referring to Christ himself. This is what Christ would be. This is what Christ would do. Christ would actually satisfy the Father when it came to the one and final offering for sin. Up to that point, the Father was not satisfied. He didn't desire it anymore. Matter of fact, as I said last time, it often slipped into just a ritualistic religion. Serving God by rote, by repetition, by habit, with no heart, no real passion for God, no real desire to do God's will, only a religious system. That's all it became. And the Lord was sickened by it. He's still sickened by religiosity, he's still sickened by hypocrisy. He's still sickened by those things today. But God the Father delighted in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because in the person of Jesus Christ, who is he? He becomes the perfect man. The one who is the perfect servant of God. He becomes the perfect sacrifice, unblemished and final. He becomes perfect also in obedience. See, it was not just... The death of Christ that was important, it was the life of Christ. Because remember, Christ lived his life perfectly before God, did all the will of God, and so therefore, Jesus Christ was the only perfectly righteous man who ever lived. Now that's really important. Those two things are very important for you and I. Because we could not get saved if Jesus Christ did not perfectly do god's will and we know that the one grand and supreme act of obedience was the cross of calvary right now while you're in hebrews just turn quickly over to philippians chapter 2 i have been kind of avoiding this passage but i just want to read it to you because again it gives in that passage of scripture the point to which christ obeyed the father and What was it? Look at Philippians 2, verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, verse 7, but emptied himself, Philippians 2, 7, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, verse 8, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There is the extent of the obedience of Jesus Christ that pleased the Father completely, that he obeyed to the point of death. All right, And we see that the agony of Christ's humanness in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was agonizing in prayer, as the Bible says in the, in the Gospels, he was sweating great drops of blood, that there was great agony for even Christ to pray, Lord, if it's possible, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He saw, don't forget, Christ was going to bear the sins of every human being that would be one of his children. All right, On that cross, sins even are innumerable. It's unimaginable what Christ did on the cross to the extent he went on the cross and what he paid for and eternal. He died an eternal death. I don't understand that. I can't wrap my mind around that. But I know that if he did that, the grace of God must be awesome. It must be awesome. But look right there in Philippians, if you're still there, look at verse number 9. Now, there's consequences because of what Christ did. It says, for this reason also God highly exalted him, And bestowed on him a name which is above every name. And then verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and underneath the earth. That's a strange statement. Underneath the earth, what do you think you're talking about? You're talking about hell. That those in hell are going to bow their knee to Christ. And they're going to say, you are Lord, but it's too late for them. So see, the reality is true. Then in verse number 11, And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus Christ is an awesome personage in the Word of God. And so the Father was pleased with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross because it was the only effective it was the only sufficient, and today, it is the only complete, final sacrifice for the sin of humanity. It was, it accomplished God's intended goal. And what was that intended goal? Well, really, three great truths are accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ find found right here in chapter 10 in verse number two of chapter 10 if you notice what it says here's the first truth that is beneficial to us were purged forever this was god's goal in verse two otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins that they would be purged forever verse number 10 of chapter 10 also, that they would be sanctified forever. By this we, by this, will we have been sac- sanctified through the offering of the one body of Jesus once for all. And then, in verse 14, to be perfected forever. So purged forever, sanctified, being set apart to God forever, and being made perfected forever by God. Where it says in verse 14... For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So, for this to happen, for you and I to be brought into a position where we are purged, sanctified, and perfected, the son's sacrifice would have to be final. would have to be a sacrifice for all time. It would have to be a sacrifice that topped all sacrifices. It would have to be a sacrifice that could never be competed with or repeated. For Christ's sacrifice to be final, four essential things need to take place. And from verse 11 through 18 we see what those are. And here's the first one. For Christ's sacrifice to be final, all priestly work needed to be finished for all time. That all the sacrificial system need to be brought to end. I mentioned that a, a bit when, next, last week, but if you notice in verse 11 what it says, it says every priest. Now, if you notice there, he's not talking about the high priest in verse number 11 of Hebrews chapter 10. He's talking about the, the everyday priest the one who goes to the tabernacle every day to offer all the sacrifices from morning to evening, offering sacrifices for what? For the sins of the people. And you know what? The sacrifices keep coming. Why? The people keep sinning. So the sacrifices keep coming. Why? Because the people keep sinning. So this goes on and on and on and on and on. And that's how our sin is. We just keep sinning. So repetitious sacrifices is a wearying routine. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I like to work out, but I hate the treadmill, because it feels like you're going nowhere. You know why? You're going nowhere. <laughs> I mean, I like other things, but the treadmill is kind of like really it really takes a lot of motivation to get on a treadmill. You're going, you're going for a half hour. You're going, and like, okay, you're, you're sweating a little bit. You're, you know, you're thinking, okay, how is this benefiting me? You know, what is it? It's making my heart move faster. But you know what? To get on it over and over again, it's, these routines would be like a treadmill. It just keeps going and going and going and going. And it never accomplishes the intended goal. And believe me, after that happens for a while, you begin to think something else has to happen here. In verse 11, it says, Every piece stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. And it left the worshiper's conscience still guilty. It left them conscious of their sin. It left them still alienated from God. Look what it says in verse 11. It says, which can never take away sins. So this type of priestly service could never do that. Now, this has been a theme that's been over and over again in Hebrews because he's driving home his point that the law was weak and useless, unable to make anything perfect in verse number 19 of chapter 7. The law made nothing perfect. The priests were weak and they were imperfect. They were sinful themselves, had to offer a sacrifice on, uh, for their own sin, and then they died, probably from exhaustion. And then the sacrificial system couldn't make anyone perfect. Hebrews 9, 9 and 10, 1 through 4. So the bottom line was that the law of the priesthood, the sacrificial system, could not give a person continual access to God and make one right before God. So now... Now, you look at the finality of Christ's sacrifice in verse number 12 of chapter 10. Look what it says. It says, But He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, that the priests stand No Levitical priest ever sat down. Whether they were the regular daily priest or the high priest, they never sat down. In fact, there was no place to sit. The earthly tabernacle had no chairs, no place to rest. It was for this reason that the Levitical priests were required to stand, that their work was, was never done, it was never complete, and that's what God's intention was. That's the picture it ought to give you. That if there was never one time sacrifice for sin, we would be in trouble. We would still have the sacrificial system if you wanted to be made right with God. But it says here something about Christ. It says, but when having once offered One sacrifice for sins for all time. What did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. That Christ sits. Christ bore all the sins of his people in a single cosmic sacrifice and he sits down. He's done. It's complete. There's nothing else that has to be done to save one who comes to Christ. So, to think that you can come to the Lord with some good works... To think you can come to God and negotiate with Him about something you have to offer is not biblical. That's something we make up as humans. We think we can negotiate with God. We, we think that somehow God is going to accept our good works. I hope I have enough good works. But in this passage of Scripture, it just gives us this sense that no, Christ did it all. And he sat down when he finished, and now by faith I can come and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved by his one time for all sacrifice and be made perfect and sanctified and purified before God. So that Christ sat down indicates that the need for further sacrifice has ended because his sacrifice was final here's the second essential for christ's sacrifice to be final all god's enemies will need to be subjugated to him for all time look at verse 13 it tells us this waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet today he rules with the Father in heaven until all his enemies are under his feet. So he is waiting right now at the right hand of the Father, a place of honor, an exalted place of honor. And what is he doing? He is waiting for the consummation of all things, for all things to be restored. And that includes subduing every hostile force in the universe against him and against us. He takes care of it all. But it had to be by the death of Christ. By the death of Christ, he not only saves people, he defeats the enemy. That's what he does. He defeats Satan. Because Satan thinks that in the sacrifice of Christ, he won. But Jesus Christ got up three days later. He defeated death, and he rose from the grave. And Satan now is freaking out because he lost. And it tells us here that all his enemies are everybody... Throughout the centuries that have rejected Christ, are Christ's enemies. We started out as enemies; we didn't know it. We were enemies of God, right? But when we came to Christ, we, we we realized we were, and now we're friends of Christ because of His sacrifice. Of course, the Antichrist and the false prophet in Scripture are enemies of God, but the culprit is the devil, right? The devil is the major enemy of God, and the Lord is going to put him under his feet. And this whole thing, this whole picture of uh, until his enemies be made a footstool is really a picture of kings standing with one foot on the neck of a vanquished foe, as kings did centuries ago, to show total victory over their enemies it would the king would stand in front of everybody on the neck of their enemy the other king and says i've won i've won and they would go and plunder and most likely kill uh the king and and all his subjects and he would be the conquering king over other enemies and so christ by his atoning death what does he do he defeats satan and death our enemy he defeats it that was back in hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 where he says and through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death and that is the devil so see the power of satan has been rendered by god inoperative to prevent someone from being saved and to take your salvation away from you, that Christ has made an atonement for sin, satisfying to God, and the fear of dying has long plagued humanity, but Christ has settled that problem by his own death and resurrection. So Satan's power of death has been annulled for those who are united to Christ in his representative death. And also Satan's authority To condemn and punish the forgiven sinner has been made void. Because he's the greatest one who wants to come against you and accuse you of sin and accuse you of things. But remember, God has already judged. He already condemned. He's already punished all our sins in Christ. So for Satan to try to cause you to be condemned. He can't do it because of the death of Christ. But you have to know that. That's what you have to understand when He comes against you. You have to know that. And then another passage of Scripture says, Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. And then I love that passage in Colossians where he says, He made you alive together with Him having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled our certificate of debt consisting of degrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him, through the death of Christ. So, Christ had to die even to defeat the enemy of Satan. To vanquish and remove his ability to keep people in bondage through fear and death. And he still does it. It's when you become a Christian you feel free from that. That the fear of death really is connected to the sinner's guilty conscience. I'm afraid of dying. Why? I don't know what's next. And if there is a God, He's going to hold me responsible for a lot of stuff. I mean, stuff you can't even remember you did, but stuff you do remember you did, well, that's where the guilt comes from. And Satan uses that to make people afraid of death, but many times in making them afraid, he never gives them the answer of what happens after death or how they can be rescued from death. Death. He never says that. He keeps them in darkness. He keeps them in blindness. So see, the guilty conscience senses that God's wrath and punishment is deserved. Now there is a healthy guilt which brings someone to understand the truth. But there is also a guilt that Satan brings where he doesn't want you to know the truth. He just wants you to be guilty. He wants you to be fearful. He wants you to be so so riddled with, with uh, torment in your conscience that you're just in chains and you're crippled. And there's, there's many people like that. Uh, and that's what he does. That's his work. But for him to go, come against the believer who knows the Lord Jesus Christ and try to condemn you and try to make you guilty in areas that you're already forgiven, he, he can't do it, but you've got to know the truth. You've got to know that, and remind him that Jesus Christ died in your place. And you've got to remind him of passages of scriptures like... Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, where it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then in verse 22, which I'm not getting there today, it says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So see, Christ's sacrifice to be final. All God's enemies need to be subjugated to Him for all time. That Christ reigns over all His enemies. It indicates that the days of the kingdom of darkness are short-lived and in line for final collapse. That's what He's waiting for. That hasn't happened yet. That's why Satan is still manipulating, still spinning his web, still coming against the King of Glory, still attacking the saints, attacking the church. He's still keeping the world in blindness. He's still keeping people at bay so they cannot know the truth and cannot see the light of the gospel. That's what he does. That's what his work is. But because of the cross, his days are numbered. Because of the cross, he's done. See, and if we're in Christ, we're on the victorious side, we're behind the king who has his, his foot on the neck of Satan, who really wasn't a real enemy to God anyway. But he wants you to think that he's that powerful, he wants you to know who he is. For most of the time, he doesn't want you to know who he is or he's even there. But I tell you what, you leave the United States and you go to another country, you know he's there because the darkness slaps you right in the face. Uh, Today, we are so, like Greg says, we're so comfortable. We're so, we have so much materialism. We have so many things in the United States that what does he have to do? He's got you. Right? He's got you. You're comfortable. You're nice. You don't need anything. So we have to watch out th- for that. We have to be careful about that. And of course, remember, in this passage of Scripture, when his enemies become a footstool for his feet, then when his work is complete and Jesus comes back, when... He does that, he will deliver the kingdom to the Father, and thus God will be all in all. In Corinthians, it tells us that the very thing, that the last enemy that will be abolished is death, and he will put all things in subjection under his feet, same thing as it's mentioned in the Hebrews. And when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected who put all things in subjection to him, when all things are subject to him, then the Son himself also will be subject to the one who subject all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Jesus Christ is going to take it all and offer it back to the Father. The Father has given the gift of his children to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ takes it all and gives it back to the Father. That's when it's all done. That's when God's plan is all done finished so there's a third essential thing for christ's sacrifice to be final all worshipers must be set apart and perfected for all times in hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14 it says for one offering by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified and so two things going on here number one perfect sacrifice Right, the offering of himself, the unblemished lamb uh, being offered before God, not offering a sacrifice for his own sin, but offering a sacrifice for our sin because he was sinless, unlike any other priest before him, and then perfect obedience. The only way that you and I can be saved is also, like I says before, I said before was by the perfect, obedient life of Christ. Why is that? Well, Christ's righteousness, it's called double imputation, where God imputes something. He accounts something to your account. right? Well, we have double imputation. Christ, what he does is he takes his righteousness and he puts it on our account and then he transfers your sin to the cross. So he becomes... And cancels that sin on the cross, and so he becomes—that's double imputation. Your sin goes to him; his righteousness goes to you. And so, when the Father looks down upon you, when you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, He does not see your sin; He sees you clean and purified, and with the righteousness of Christ on your account, clean and purified by His death, and the righteousness of Christ on your account because of his perfect life. That's double imputation. And why is God doing that? You know why he's doing it? He's making a people that's clean and pure to come into his presence so he can have eternal fellowship with us. That's what he's doing. So, well, where is that else in Scripture? Look at Titus chapter 2. If you look right before Hebrews is Philemon and then Titus. Look at chapter 2 in verse number 14. This is a tremendous passage of Scripture, really very pointedly telling you what I'm saying to you and what Hebrews is telling us. Look what it says in Titus 2, verse 14. It says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Now, get this the Lord is doing this for himself. He's taking a people for himself, He's dying in the place of those people that He takes for Himself. He makes you and I, who have come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, as His own possession as his treasure, as his precious ones. For what reason? While we're left here on this earth, that we would be zealous of good deeds. Now, you know what that means? That means that once the Spirit of God is in us, we want to do right. We want to please God, but we cannot do right unless the Spirit of God lives in us in us unless we have been purified unless we have the righteousness of christ imputed to our account we cannot do deeds that are pleasing and good and right before god only after we trust in christ can we be zealous for good deeds and isn't that what christians are christians are zealous to do what's right they're zealous to do things that honor and please and give delight to god why? Because God enabled you to do that. But it was because of Christ's final sacrifice that you're even able to become a possession of God and to become to God His own people. What do you belong to? I belong to God. Whose family are you in? I'm in God's family. What citizen... Are you of? I'm a citizen of heaven. That's pretty awesome. To be a citizen of heaven. To be a child of the king of kings. To know these things is so incredibly awesome. That Christ perfected and set apart those who believe indicates that his sacrifice was powerful enough To remove sin, not cover sin, remove sin. That's a different understanding than the Old Testament. The Old Testament, Yom Kippur, means to cover. That's not the word here, it's the word to purge, to remove completely the stain, and to make clean. That's what God does to us. And that's what the sacrifice of god does to it that's how powerful it was it removes the sin and it removes the guilt that goes with the sin and you know what it does makes us clean it makes us purified it makes us able to go into the presence of god that's what it's it has done no sacrifice was able to do that so christ pleases the father by accomplishing the goal to take a people for himself and purify them and bring them into his kingdom that's what god's done but there's one last essential one last essential that for christ's sacrifice to be final all promises and provisions of the new covenant must be fulfilled now look at your bibles in hebrews chapter 10 In verse number 15 and 16, because here is the first... Now, you remember, I gave you this before. What are the promises of the new covenant and the provisions of the new covenant? Here's the first one. Here's the first one. That everyone under the new covenant will have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. If you notice in your Bibles, it says this. Now, of course... From Ezekiel chapter 36, it says, I will put my spirit within them. But notice what Hebrews does. In verse number 16, he says, and um, well, in verse number 16, 15, he says, I will. uh, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. So at this point, the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, here is something that the Holy Spirit testifies us, testifies uh, to us. And what is it that we would have his permanent indwelling. That the Spirit of God is brought in. So everybody who becomes a believer has the Spirit of God permanently indwelt them. Permanently inside them. Secondly, everyone in the New Covenant, in verse 16, the second part of, number, part of, of verse number 16, will have a new heart. It says, and I will put my laws upon their hearts. All right, this is what part of the New Covenant. I will put it inside of you. I, I will put it inside of you. And then the third thing, everyone in the New Covenant will have the law inside their heart. All right? A new heart, and then the law inside their heart. It says, and on their mind, I will write them. So he uses the heart, and then the mind, the thinking part of you. He will write His law upon the thinking part of you. And why does He do that? Because New Covenant people, the Holy Spirit of God will give believers the capacity to know God's righteousness and live in holiness. Zealous for good deeds. Know what pleases God. Know what honors God. That's what the Spirit of God will do. And then... Of course, along with that, New Covenant people obey God, not so much because they have to, but because they want to. Because they know who they're obeying. They love His Word and know what His mind is because they have been given the ability to obey and the desire to obey and the power to obey. That's what the Spirit of God does. And that is not in the Old Covenant. That is in the New Covenant. So see, once a person professes Christ and becomes a believer and the Spirit of God is in you, what's happening to you? God's changing you from the inside out and he's giving you a desire to obey and follow him like you never had before. So that's real conversion. See, so so real conversion is not just profession of faith, but following Christ. And... Not because you have to follow or because some religious system says to follow or even because mom and dad dad says to follow or somebody you like says to follow but because you want to follow because you know who you're following and you know what he's done for you and you follow with a gracious and with a grateful heart. Lord, every day, Lord, I don't deserve such great salvation. Such a great salvation. I don't deserve such grace. But you've given it to me. And I am thankful for it. And I want to tell everybody about it. I want everybody to know this. That Christ. Set aside the old covenant. To establish the new covenant. Indicates. That true worshipers can finally. Experience. The peace of God. Because they have peace with God, and then come before God with a guilt-free conscience. You got that? To come before God with a guilt-free conscience. Only the Lord can do that. And it's only because Christ's sacrifice was final could that ever be. So here's the conclusion of this passage in Hebrews, chapter 10, which ends the doctrinal section of Hebrews. And if you look at this great truth, which is encouraging for all God's children, and that is the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ causes God the Father to forget our sins, end our violations of His law, or transgressions is another way to say it, and not just to cover them, but to purge them from your account forever that 's what he does. Look at verse number ten or verse number eighteen of chapter ten. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. You have just ended right there in that passage a ten chapter sermon series on the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what the writer of Hebrews has done. What enables God to forget? And it literally means God forgets. How can God forget? God can only forget unless he purges his own mind of remembrance of our sin. And that's what the intention is. God purges his own mind Of any remembrance of your sin. It's an awesome thought. And it's only because of the full. And final. Expiation. Of the all. Time sacrifice. For all sins of Jesus Christ. So the gracious forgiveness of God. Is not limited pardon. But when God forgives. A person. He draws the mark through every single sin. Every single sin which the believer has ever committed or ever will commit. However, many, however monstrous their sins may have been, the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, they are forever, every one of them blotted out. They're all gone when God pardons the sins of his children, there is not one single one left, not even a half of one. When God forgives, there is never punishment afterwards. He's taking the full punishment for it. There is never punishment afterwards. God chastises us. He chastises us, spanks us to get in line as a father would discipline his child but not as a judge to send you to prison or send you to hell. See, by one sacrifice, there is full remission of all sin that ever was against a believer or ever will be against him. There is no believer who shall be condemned about their sin on the day of judgment. It will not be about sin on the day of judgment for God's children. It will be about their works. It will be about what they have done for the Lord. Have they been zealous for good deeds? Have they been serving God? Do they have the works to prove they have faith in Christ? See, if you receive this grace, and that's what it is, it's the grace of God. The free grace of God. If you receive this grace, well, there are certain privileges that follow understanding such grace. And the first privilege is to have peace of, peace of conscience. There's nothing to condemn you anymore. To have access to God. There's nothing to prevent from enjoying God's presence anymore. No fear of hell. There's nothing any longer that can send you there. Because Christ has been punished in your place, and therefore justice cannot touch you any longer. And then it's the expectation of heaven. Sudden death is sudden glory. Heaven is an open door. Heaven is home for the believer. So all this because of the final sacrifice of jesus christ so if you have not received god's grace you're still in your sins if you have not received god's grace you're still unpurified if you have not received god's grace then you're still trying to offer god dead works if you have not received god's grace then you're still under god's god- condemnation what are you doing just come. So I got all these questions. No, don't forget the questions. Come to Christ. You get your answers. Come first. Come first to Christ. He'll answer your questions. He's answered every one of mine. and I had a lot of them. And he's still answering them. Matter of fact, he's answering questions I didn't know I even had. And he's answering your questions that you didn't know you had either. Right? He's solving Issues and problems that I thought in my mind and I didn't even know where to go with my thoughts. And he's answered them. Just by looking at the scripture and finding out the mind of God, he has set me free. He has set you free. So, my admonition to you is accept God's invitation and come and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. If you're not saved. But if you are, to take this great gift that God has given you and to live for God as a person who is known to be zealous for good works. That's what we need. In this world, that's what we need. We need Christians who are zealous for God, unashamed of the name of Christ, unashamed. Of what Christ has done for them. Unashamed to go and tell anyone. Any place. Anywhere. And unashamed to live a holy life. Unashamed not to go to places you used to go to. Unashamed not to say and converse about the things you used to converse about. Unashamed of those things. See that gets the attention of the world. So I prayed this morning. That these very things. Would. Would. Direct your heart and your life to be an offering that's pleasing to God so you may know the good and acceptable and perfect will of God in your life and that God may continue to transform your mind in which the Spirit of God dwells to make you more and more and more like Him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning again for the gospel of Jesus Christ for the things, the details contained within the gospel that help me understand it better that help us to be set free from wrong thinking, thinking concerning it to help us Lord uh, to know that Satan is up to no good with the children of God and that we know when he comes against us and we know the truth enough to tell him that Christ has defeated you, has died in my place, and there is no longer condemnation to those in Christ, I pray, Lord, that you may continue to free us up so we can think in a way that honors you, so we can live in a way that pleases you, so even our very thoughts may be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, set us apart as a people, as your people of your own possession, your own children. And I pray, Lord, you would continue to work on us and that you would continue to set us apart until the day you take us home, until the day, Lord, we are in your presence. Let us be faithful to live with you with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.